here. We're in the book of 1 Peter. It's uh, printed in your worship guide, but it's also, you can, um, again, take a Bible in the back and go there too. 1 Peter chapter 5. I would say it's probably nine-tenths through your Bible. Nine-tenths? We're going we're gonna to go with that? Nine-tenths, maybe? Yeah, this much more? Is that nine-tenths? That's probably a little more than nine-tenths. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's about where it is. Okay, everyone? There you go. Yeah. First Peter chapter 5. Uh, I had a, I had a friend uh, that was very ambitious in college, um, kind of one of the guys, hey, I'm going to be the leader kind of guy. Uh, he's big in weightlifting and uh, uh, being leaders in organizations on campus. And uh, there was a girl on campus, uh, and uh, her dad is very, was, is very famous. Uh, he was a player at SMU football, um, All-American, and then uh, coached at Texas A&M. And uh, then he's uh, the head of the largest uh, Christian sports camp in the United States. And uh, he thought, I'm going to date this girl. And uh, he does. And uh, one weekend, the, um, her father, her famous father, comes down uh, to see his daughter and meet this guy. And uh, so my friend's 20, and uh, this guy, whose name is Joe White, is in his 50s. And uh, Joe says to my friend Andy, he says, uh, you know, can we, I know you like to weightlift, can we go weightlifting tomorrow? And uh, Andy says, sure, you can come weightlifting with me. So, uh, you know, Joe shows up with Andy in early morning and he says um, uh, to Andy, you know, can we do my circuit this morning? And he's like, oh yeah, that's, that's probably be best if we did your circuit. So, um, so Andy is starting to do Joe White's circuit, you know, his workout circuit. And uh, uh, probably about 15 to 20 minutes into the circuit, he is feeling it, okay? And 30 minutes into the circuit, he is feeling it so much that he vomits right there in the gym with this 50-year-old man who has just worked him at age 20. Well, Andy ended up getting married to Joe's daughter, and through that, he uh, learned the lessons of humility. Uh, he learned what it meant to be a real leader. He learned that it took pain to get to that place, and uh, now he is actually himself um, the head of uh, one of the largest camps in Colorado, Camp Kivu in Durango, where Aaron and I uh, worked uh, when we were younger. Well, my question then is for you. You want to be a leader? <laughs> you want to be ambitious in that? You want to do something like that? What does it take? What does it take to be a leader in the church? And what are the characteristics of a leader in the church? We're going to find out that answer this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're just going to look at the first five verses We'll look at the other verses next week. So follow with me. 1 Peter 5, verse, verse, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge or being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. I pray you would inform us, it would change us, it would transform us, and it would make us think about what leadership looks like in your church, in our homes, in our workplaces. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. I know many of us, many of you are just joining us. We have been going through the winter and here in the early spring, the book of First Peter, and we'll be ending soon. And I'm just going to give you a quick um, run through what First Peter is, and that's this. It's what I would say the most concise book in the New Testament about what it means to live the Christian life. Uh, I like to call it the resume of Christianity, First Peter. And on that resume are things like this. Uh, what is these people's backgrounds? We know these people that Peter is writing to are people that um, have been literal exiles. They've been moved from Rome thousands of miles away to what is modern-day Turkey, northern Turkey. And with that, they're not just physical exiles, but they are spiritual and emotional and, and uh, relational exiles. Because they believe in Jesus, the one that was uh, crucified on the cross, the Roman form of execution, um, they're following a pretty despicable guy to the Romans, or one that is full of shame. And also, um, they do not participate in some of the things of the Roman Empire, which causes them to kind of be uh, isolated, displaced, um, not looked at in... um, a very positive light. So yeah, they are exiles physically and spiritually. What else? They are people that, while they are exiles, on the resume it says this, they are elect. They have been given an inheritance that will not fade or perish. And with that, they are given certain titles that we saw in First Peter. They are a royal priesthood. They are a part of um, this body, this living temple. They are also people that display hospitality, that are also honor the empire, honor those that they are employed by, honor their roles in their households, even if they face the suffering and persecution that would come their way. And again, I talked last week that on this resume would be a big red stamp. Boom. Suffering. That would be the first people thing that people might see of them. These are people that have had to suffer, whether it's persecution or being looked at in the wrong way. But now the question gets to this. Who will lead these people? Who will lead this group? What will they look like? And it's a very good question, especially for the setting of northern Turkey, because of this. You know, the apostles, these are the kind of the 12 that um, 
knew Jesus and saw Jesus, had been given just miraculous gifts, they didn't spend a lot of their time in northern Turkey. They were centered more in Rome and southern Turkey and Jerusalem. And so there was, really wasn't a very good leadership structure in northern Turkey. Now, Peter was in and out, but that's probably all they had. And unlike the writings of Paul, Peter is not as detailed about what the roles of these elders are, the structure, what the church kind of looks like, all those things, because I think this is a young church, a church that is just starting, where the leaders are starting to emerge. And Peter is saying, okay, you want to start to identify who the leaders are in your church and what they look like? Here are some examples of what that leadership is. And many of these leaders were those that were kind of leading these home gatherings in these different cities in northern Turkey. Well, why did I decide First Peter for a church plant? Because I think it's very fitting. It's fitting because of this. We are starting to realize who we are as a church, what it means to be a body. And then we're also realizing, what does it mean for us to relate to the culture at large, which First Peter talks about? And lastly, we're learning to realize in this own church, what should leaders look like in our midst? A little bit of um, context for you guys. We have no official elders in this church, what I call ruling elders. These are people that are unlike myself and Bill, which I call teaching elders, ones that teach the word and do communion. Um, ruling elders are those from within the congregation, men, that uh, would serve in the role of governance and shepherding over the body. So because we have none of that, we're actually not an official church. Did you know that? We're not what's called a particularized church. But we're trying to get there. And one of the big steps to get there is starting to identify men in our church that would be elders. And we're hoping through time and through experience and through testing that these men would come up and that we would then ordain them and then we would become our own particularized church. Now, there's still accountability. I report to uh, a different session that are um, uh, elders throughout Wisconsin that hold this church accountable, but we are trying over time to become our own particularized church. So this is fitting, this kind of passage, and this would be good for us. What kind of men fit into this category? What do they look like? And more than that, this passage is also transferable to those that are in any leadership position. It just it shouldn't be for elders in the church, whether you're a mom at home, whether you're leading in the workplace. These kind of things that are taught here are transferable. Well, let's start here again with a very important word. I think probably the most important word of the whole passage. Are you ready to see what the most important word in the whole passage is? Here we go. You're looking shepherding, exercising oversight. No, I think it's this word so. <laughs> so, or un, or therefore. So there, what he's doing is, is Peter saying, before I talk about what leadership is, I want to go back to what I've talked about in the past. And what has he talked about in the past? Well, he's talked about persecution. He's talked about what people in the church face. 
suffering and persecution. And he says this, which is crazy. He says that trials and judgment, it will come first to the household of God. What does that mean? Peter is trying to say this. God is going to give persecution and suffering to the church first so that what comes to the surface is what they truly believe. It's like burning off stuff, right? Like it says, burning off things so a true refinement happens, that all the stuff that is not the actual gold is gone until what you see is what matters. And so what is happening is God is doing the same thing to this church in northern Asia, in northern Turkey. He's saying, I'm going to burn away what you think is valuable through suffering and persecution, so you will see what you truly value, and that it would be me. And suffering is the best way to see what you truly will value. And so the question then becomes, how does that relate at all to then leaders in the church? Why would he make this change from persecution to then leadership. And the word so, therefore, says that there is a reason that these two ideas come together. And I think it's because of this. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 9, it also talks about judgment coming first to Israel, to the temple. But also it says in Ezekiel 9, judgment will come first to the elders, to the leaders among you. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that leaders would face suffering and persecution first. If the Roman Empire is going after this early church, they would say, who are your leaders? Who are the ones that you are led by? We will go after them first. They are the ones that are going to face the pressure as they try to lead these people. That they are the ones that are going to come under the judgment first. And then it says, if they are going to follow under the footsteps of the chief shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus, who was actually persecuted himself and died on the cross, this is the kind of suffering that these guys might face themselves. Why is it important for leaders in the church to go through suffering first? I think it's important for this reason. You are leading the way in what the people that you're shepherding and leading over what they are going to face themselves. If you can't face suffering yourself, if you can't face persecution yourself, how will you then stand by your people and lead them when they face suffering and persecution themselves? And in fact, suffering and persecution among the leaders will drive them to a place where they will understand what people in their midst are facing and help them through it. Example, okay? Ready? Um, I like David Brooks. Uh, he is an um, editor at the New York Times, and uh, he's not a Christian, uh, but he had an article this week in the New York Times about suffering. And he was making some comments how we live in an age where uh, people like happiness. Okay, that's a big thing. And there's thousands of books on the shelves now of how to reach happiness. But Brooks was commenting that um, it seems when he talks to people, 
leaders in the nation, that when they talk about their past, they talk about how their suffering formed them to help them be happy now. And how when there's an avoidance of pain in our culture and what suffering takes, it, it doesn't allow people to truly be formed. And he says this in his article. Please bear with me as I read this. About suffering. He says, recovering from suffering is not like recovering from a disease. Many people don't come out healed. They come out different. They crash through the common sense of wanting personal gain. And they start to behave paradoxically or differently. Instead of backing away from the sorts of loving commitments that almost always involve suffering, they throw themselves more deeply into them. Even while experiencing the worst and most lacerating consequences, some people double down on vulnerability. They hurl themselves deeper and gratefully into their art, loved ones, and commitments. That's what happens to leaders. And when they go through that kind of suffering, they are able to bear with people, even when it's hard and difficult, in a greater way than they've ever experienced before. I mentioned Joe White, right? I love Joe White. I went to Kanaka camps all through growing up. And this was a tough dude, okay? A football coach more chiseled than I'll ever be at age 50, you know? But the thing is, Joe was a great leader because of the suffering he faced. Joe was a coach at Texas A&M. His wife at that time had been a former cheerleader at SMU. And one day he walked in to his wife having an affair with his best friend. It crushed him. It brought him down to a place where he didn't know what was up and what was down. His desires and dreams of being a football coach just seems trivial. And through the suffering, it drove him to Christ. And now, you know, when you see Joe White, and I saw him at camp, it was just a weird thing. Because here was a guy that coached the football guys that was loud and boisterous and go get them and all these things. And then sometimes I would see him kneeling with a young boy, eight or nine years old, and weeping with him. Because what this boy was facing at home and the suffering that this young man was going through. You see, what formed Joe into being a great shepherd for young men was the suffering himself. Because it showed the only way to get through it was Christ. And then, through that suffering, he could then go into other people's suffering around him and lead them through it. Does suffering drive you deeper into Christ? <laughs> does it bring you to that place or does it make you embittered? Does it make you not wanting to bear with other people? You know, leaders are people that are going to face suffering of people around them. 
This is what I've seen as a leader in the church. That people among the congregation suffer and go through pain. And when they suffer and go through pain, they lash out. (laughs) I don't know if you know that. They don't start to trust in Jesus, that's for sure. They trust in other things. And they start to lash out towards you as a leader. They start to say things that are difficult and hard. And it's at that time as a leader that you have to show them that a way to go through suffering and to go through this fire is to rely on Jesus Christ. And if you've gone through it yourself, you can help people that have also done it. One word. So. Therefore. Well, let's move on here and look at verse 1 and verse 2, shall we? You're like, man, that took a long time. Don't worry, that took up the chunk of everything, okay? So, here we go. Now Peter says this. He says, I identify with you in this kind of role you're doing. As a fellow elder, and really fellow is also modifying witness, so as a co-elder and as a co-witness of suffering, I also have experienced those same things. Uh, If we were in some churches, uh, maybe in the South, um, it would go like this. Can I get a witness? Right? That's how it would go, right? And then people would say, amen, right? So here, that's Peter saying the same thing. Can I get a witness? To the elders. Amen. We go through suffering. Yes, he has witnessed the suffering that Jesus went through. But he is also saying, I too suffer because I identify with Christ in the same way that you are suffering. I understand what you are going through. And that is a very helpful. He could have called himself an apostle in this section like he did at the beginning. But instead, he decides to identify with the leaders in calling himself an elder. Well, since I've thrown you guys already into a Presbyterian um, you know, doctrine, I might as well throw you into Presbyterian polity today, right? I've already taken one step. I've got to take the next step, right? Because it's here in the passage. And in this passage is three words for um, leaders in the church. Okay? And some churches take what is called a two-office view. Some take a three-office view. And I would argue some churches take a four-office view of leadership in the church. One office that is not identified here is the office of deacon. And most all churches agree that is an office, deacon. But here is some other offices mentioned in three things in this passage in verse 1 and 2. One of them is a shepherd, which from the Latin word, we get the word pastor. Okay? So, some people have said, okay, a pastor is one of those offices. Another word we get here is elder, or presbytos, which we get the word Presbyterian, right? And then another here is exercising oversight, which is like episco, in which we get the word episcopalian, which also is the word bishop, okay? So, here are three offices that um, I've seen in the churches. I've seen bishops, elders, And pastors, okay? Now, as the Presbyterian Church, we hold a two-office view. We believe in elders and deacons, and nothing more. And the thing is, I think that coincides, not because that's our tradition and that's what we do, it coincides with the Scriptures. 
And here is what I'm going to say about it. It says this, the office that is mentioned here is elder. But when it says shepherd or pastor, shepherding is what the function of an elder does. So it's not its own office, but it's what elders do. And then exercising oversight, that word bishop, is used too as qualifying what elders do. They exercise oversight. Still don't agree with me? I don't even know this, but in the 3rd and 4th century, when bishops started to come to formation, um, the church went back to this passage in 1 Peter and decided, oh wait, there's some confusion here about the word bishop because it sounds like, like a role that elders do. So they actually changed the word episcopos in there in the first peter the early manuscripts have it we have it here but they changed it because oh wait a second we don't want there there to be confusion and also if you read in the book of acts elder and bishop are titles that are used interchangeably my little polity lesson was this for you to say this i believe there's only two offices in scripture the office of elder and the office of deacon. And there in the book of 1 Peter 5, it shows that very thing. How was that? Tangential enough? Was that okay? A little less than? Okay. If you tuned out for that time, I'll get back to uh, elders, okay? And what the role is, okay? So you want to lead. You want to lead in your home. You want to lead in the church. You want to lead at, at work. Peter is going to give you some checks to see if you really have what it takes to lead. So let's look at some of the checks he, go, he does. So you exercise oversight, okay? How do you exercise oversight? Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. The reason he says as God would have you because he's making a contrast with kind of the leaders that are happening at Rome at that time. The thing is, as a leader in Rome, <laughs> it was pretty comfy. If you were leaders, you were able to get titles and land and money. But leading in this time um, in the church did not give you such things. You, in fact, faced suffering. You had to deal with people that were poor and that were hard to deal with. And I can imagine some of the leaders in Rome looking at the leaders in the church and saying, Oh, man. You have to lead that kind of person? Dude, I'm sorry. You know, one way to tell that you're a leader that's mentioned here is that you don't say statements like that. Like, man, I have to lead this person? (laughs) You can't imagine the kind of person I have to bear with. You can't imagine the kind of kids I have to raise. You can't imagine the kind of employees I have to suffer through. Is that the kind of comments you make to other people? Is that the kind of things you say? Maybe Oh, I don't say it to other people, but I say it in my head. You don't lead out of compulsion. You lead willingly. And it would make sense. If you said, you know what, I'm a sinner... I have nothing and Christ forgave me. 
Should you not look at anyone that is under your charge saying, you know what? I am the same as they are. And I will willingly serve them because I know that Christ has forgiven me. I will bear with them. Okay. That's one check. Okay. Number two is this. It says, um, over, you know, oversight that you would not be for shameful gain, but you would do it eagerly. Now, what was happening at this time, there were actually paid roles in the church for people that were doing pastoral ministry. And some people were taking advantage of it, especially people that were unemployed. They said, oh, this is a nice job. (laughs) I will have a church job and it will pay me. And here, what Peter is saying is, I hope that is not what drives you to doing pastoral work, getting paid, especially at that time. Now, uh, for some of us that might work in nonprofit work or do service in the church or whatever, we probably overcome that. We don't get paid a lot, okay? Or we say, um, I'm not going to really be very famous from this. But I think there is another way that we still do it for shameful gain. <laughs> um, a pastor friend of mine called it being an approval suck. Okay? <laughs> it works a little bit like this. I'm not getting paid much. I'm not got much fame, but you better love me in what I do. Give me encouragement. Tell me I'm great. Tell me I'm good at what I do. And then I get encouraged. Whoever it is, I'm uh, probably talking to myself, aren't I? Then when you don't get encouragement, you get discouraged. Oh man, aren't I wonderful? Aren't I amazing? Do you serve for shameful gain? Or do you serve eagerly out of Christ? Not looking for what gains would come here on earth, but the gain to come, the, the, the treasures to come, that come when Christ would return and this earth would be made new. Okay, last one here. Overseeing, not domineering, but a role model for the flock. Are you willing to do the same work that you're calling the other people that you shepherd over to do? Are you willing to do the same work? Oh man, I, I have to shepherd this one person that just can't forgive others. Are you forgiving others? Oh man, this person just won't serve in the way I want them to serve. Do you serve those people when it's not for your own gain? If you're not willing to be an example to those people, that is not a sign of a good elder. Well, here it goes in verse 5. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, hum- to the humble. Now, here it's not a older versus younger. That's not what they're talking about. It's not talking about age. But instead, the contrast is those who are younger in the faith and those that are older in the faith. And being subject to those that are older in the faith and have been given these roles of elders does not mean being a person that just follows everything that they say. Instead, it means following them as they have been given the role in Christ. So therefore, as they are leading in Christ, 
teaching His Word, that you would be following such things. But over all of that, both leaders and those that they are leading, there needs to be the element of humility. Because if humility is not there, you can take the slightest instruction in the wrong way. (laughs) You can take the slightest correction and say, can you believe that person said that? But instead, if you're able to look at others with charity and grace, you're able to take correction from each other and grow together in Christ. My favorite book on leadership other than the Bible is this short book. It's just 80 pages. And if you've been around me enough, I sign it over and over and over again because it's so rich and it's so good. It's in the name of Jesus. And actually, the print is really small, too. And he's even got pictures, right? How could this be good? It is so good. Henry Nowen, who has now passed away, was a pastor. And uh, he was a teacher, a professor at Harvard University. And he um, gave up his teaching at Harvard to um, go be a part of a community called La Arch. La Arch was a community of... Um, mentally disabled people. And in his serving at La Arche, he learned many lessons about leadership, and he puts it here. And what happened at La Arche was this, that um, part of his commitment was whenever he went on speaking gigs, which he went, he had to take one of these um, members or people in the community with him, mentally disabled um, individuals. And he had a huge speaking gig in Washington, D.C., among lots of leaders in the D.C. community. And he had to bring Bill with him. And so here is Henry Nowen, this famous theologian and pastor, up here speaking to these leaders in Washington, D.C. And Bill is with him on the stage. And Bill has decided, as um, he's done with each page of his speech, he's going, he gets up and walks over and takes it, the page, and flips it over for him. And then at times that Henry Nowen is speaking, Bill interrupts him and says, that's right, Henry has taught us that before. And at the very end of the speech, Bill says, Henry, I'd like to say something now. And he makes his little talk. And Henry Nowen says this at the end in the epilogue. He says, in the past, I had always given lectures, sermons, addresses, and speeches by myself. Often I had wondered how much of what I said would be remembered. Now it dawned on me that most likely much of what I said would not be long remembered, but that Bill and I doing it together would not easily be forgotten. That is shepherding. That is entering into the pain of others. That is not doing things out of compulsion, but willingly. Not doing it out of gain, but doing it because you see a gain will come greater than this world later. And not doing it to domineer and lord over others, but to, to lead them by showing them. You know, Jesus came into Jerusalem. <laughs> And people had an expectation of what the leader would be. Hosanna, 
king, deliver us. Throw off the kings of Rome. Throw off these high priests of Jerusalem. Finally, you can be the true king. Well, the king did come to Jerusalem. And he came into Jerusalem a different way than he left, didn't he? He came in as a king, but he came out as one suffering, dragging a cross outside of the city gates. No leader would suffer in that way willingly, but Jesus did for us. He did not come into this world for his gain, but for ours. The disciples, he did not force them to take the cross, but he took it himself, being an example to the flock. See, you see, the chief shepherd suffered in such a way so that we would receive the crown and prize that will never fade. If this is how the God of the universe lived in this world and led, should we not submit to him and follow his way of leadership in what we do? That is the good news. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have turned leadership upside down through being a suffering servant, by being one that washes our feet, by being one that leads the way in suffering when we should have to do it ourselves and you took it. God, raise up leaders like that in this church so that we would show this world what it takes, that sin would be conquered, that this world would be renewed, that your kingdom would come. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and continue in worship as we close in our song, Wonderful, Merciful Savior.
Will the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit remain with you always. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go in peace.